S2B or not to SDAB. This week, Council has approved 209 new shelter spaces for this winter out of the Financial Stabilization Reserve. Plus, Boyle Street is being left out in the cold on their new building. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 201. Fans of Jeopardy will have noticed that Sam Papua was a contestant on Jeopardy, and spoiler alert, didn't defeat crowd favorite Chris Panulo. But I gotta say, I was a little bit frustrated with the timing of it. I I thought I had a monopoly on Edmontonians participating in Jeopardy, but alas, apparently Ken Jennings wanted to upset that. People who are true subscribers to Edmonton Jeopardy, however, they can tune in at the end of the month for councillors Salvador, Stevenson, and Jans competing in Speaking Municipally Jeopardy. Promises to be much more exciting than that episode with Sam, unfortunately for her. <laughs> Chris Panulo, real good at Jeopardy. And this podcast, real good at the rapid fire segment. Earthquakes Canada is reporting a series of earthquakes in excess of five magnitude Tuesday afternoon caused by the large amount of petulant foot stomping during Daniel Smith's tantrum or introduction of the sovereignty bell. In an effort to spur more investment from the city, ETS drivers are sharing images of what they call their, quote, daily reality on transit. The images are stark and shocking, with many calling them dangerous and inhumane. The images released all show drivers driving buses, but they're operating within the city of Edmonton. Said city manager Andre Corbold, while we caught him out for drinks with friends in St. Albert, quote, I've been known to take a train from time to time, but being on a bus in Edmonton? Not a chance you'd find me there. They call me Andre, not fool. Edmonton Police Association President Michael Elliott has resigned, citing a need to protect his mental health, but is asking that his struggle not be shared with anyone actively serving in the Edmonton Police Service, lest they perform a wellness check. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Winter is coming, or here, and energy usage for all Albertans will be increasing. So now is a great time for listeners to look at their utility bills and ensure they're on the best plan. Albertans have a choice who they pay their utility bills to. Park Power is happy to provide free, no-obligations comparisons. And if you decide to switch providers, it's easy. You can feel good knowing you're supporting a local business and helping to give back to our communities with your utilities bills. Learn more at parkpower.ca. My Park Power subscription took effect December 1st, so as we're recording this today, my power's still on. Uh, I think it works. That's a good thing. Sounds like it was easy as they say. Very easy. Just like it was easy for Council this week to approve new shelter space, Council has decided that they are going to fund 209 new spaces at the Jasper Place Wellness Center at the cost of $7.5 million. This proposal came up, of course, because of the lack of emergency shelter spaces that we have in Edmonton. So we have about 2,600, almost 2,700 people who are experiencing homelessness in Edmonton. That's according to data from Homeward Trust. And more than 1,200 of those folks rely on emergency shelters or sleep outdoors or sleep rough. So that's a significant number of people. It's more than double the number of people that Homer Trust knew about uh, who, who relied on shelters and sleeping outside at the beginning of the pandemic. So it's gotten much, much worse. Edmonton has 622 permanently funded emergency shelter spaces. So not nearly enough for everybody who might need them this winter. The province, you might recall, back in October, approved some money for 450 additional spaces. Most of those are now 
online. So the province uh, told administration the same day as this meeting was taking place at council that they expected it to be done, you know, no later than mid-December, but probably much sooner than that. So we'll have about a thousand spaces. And then this approval that you mentioned, the 209 new shelter spaces would get us up to the number that's needed to ensure that if all of the folks who rely on shelters wanted a place to stay, rather needed a place to stay, we would have enough shelter spaces for them. Of course, we also heard at the meeting, just because there's a space in a shelter doesn't necessarily mean that's the best place for someone who is sleeping rough. I would say probably when it's minus 30, minus 40 with the wind chill out, that argument uh, gets a bit tougher to make because it is a critical emergency. But we heard city administration talk about things like people in shelters don't typically feel safe. They feel crowded. They feel like they lack privacy and they feel like, in some cases, can't uh, practice their religious beliefs in shelters. So these are all problems with the shelter system. The shelter system we know is always just supposed to be a bridge. It's not a replacement for permanent supportive housing. It is just an emergency stopgap to make sure people don't die, which is why funding it from the Financial Stabilization Reserve, this fund that, call it the rainy day emergency fund, that was why council decided it was appropriate to use this because this is one-time funding for an emergency amount of shelter space to fill a gap that we've identified in the city of Edmonton. And just to underline the point, like, you know, nobody wants to be in a shelter right? They need to be in a shelter because of the extreme weather conditions. Part of the city's extreme weather response are these buses that will take people to shelters. And the city manager, Andre Corbold, told council that, you know, not everybody wants to do that either. I think one evening this week, he said there was 156 people that accepted a ride, but 118 who, for whatever reason, did not accept a ride uh, to one of the shelters. I mean, despite that, Our current shelter spaces have been well above 95% occupancy on cold nights for for quite some time. And so this was another reason why, you know, council thought it was so important to, to try and do something about that. At the meeting, we did hear, as you might imagine, Troy, quite a bit about how this is not really a city of Edmonton thing. This is not in our jurisdiction. We shouldn't have to deal with this. Hold on a moment. The city doesn't think that housing is their response. Is this new? Have have we heard this before? (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, never change, Councillor Paquette. He got up to speak and he's like, I'm not going to be very long. I just very quickly. And then, of course, used his entire five minutes (laughs) talking about how horrible it is that the city of Edmonton has to step forward to fund this when the province is not doing enough. And so it was unsurprising, I suppose, that uh, a couple of things to happen during the meeting. Number one, Mayor Sohi asked for support for this and, and requested that council support it unanimously as a way to show the province that, you know, they really do care about this and it's a really important priority. And council did actually vote unanimously to approve this. And then the other thing is he made a subsequent motion to call for an emergency meeting with the province to talk about this. And he he cited, you know, a bunch of facts and figures about how much of a a crisis the situation is in Edmonton, and also compared the amount of funding that Calgary gets to the amount of uh, funding that we get here in Edmonton, and it's higher in Calgary, and he's looking for more equity there. So this funding was unanimous. Was there much debate about this at all? Well, this was at executive committee, right? And so there was some discussion there. But at council, I was actually surprised there was any debate at all, to be honest. I mean, this is clearly a crisis. We heard from administration and from the mayor, actually, right before he called the vote, confirmation that another person had died in Edmonton, out in the cold. Like, we, we've heard about 
an increasing number of deaths due to this situation. It didn't seem to me like the thing that we needed to be really interrogating that deeply, if that makes sense. Jennifer Rice in particular, Council Rice, asked a number of questions about this, like what about, you know, do, does it really need $1 million for the building? What happens if we don't spend the whole amount? Does it go back into the FSR? And, you know, that's her job, right? She's got to ask questions. She's doing some governance. But on an issue like this, I'm not sure administration is trying to gild the lily. They've identified a crisis and they brought forward this problem that executive committee already recommended to council. I kind of expected it to just go right to a vote and and pass. But, you know, there were some questions. One of the lines of questions that I specifically noted was around LRT stations and transit stations, which in past years we've opened up as emergency spaces as part of the cold weather protocol. Yeah. Uh, The city confirmed, however, this week that they will not be opening any transit stations as part of the cold weather protocol this year. Yeah, this is why they have the buses, right? To to take people from these transit centers, from LRT stations and other places to the shelters. The city says that they, they lack amenities, they're not always heated, they don't have adequate washrooms. I'm sure they're concerned about safety and security uh, in those places, so they won't be opening those, as you say. So this is now looking like we are going to have enough shelter spaces for this winter, at least for six months. What we still have as a big problem is that this is temporary. You know, as you mentioned, and as Councillor Paquette and Councillor Knack and several of the people who spoke to this at council mentioned, this is not a solution to this problem. This is a temporary stopgap. While it's great that council stepped forward to make this happen for this winter, you know, we're probably going to be back in the same situation next year. Supporting our vulnerable populations, there's a whole gamut of services that need to be offered to really achieve success. And one of those, of course, we all know very well is Boyle Street Community Services. They are currently located just north of Rogers Place in that blue building uh, by the several parking lots. However, they are moving, or at least they thought they were. Part of the announcement was that the Oilers Community Foundation had contributed nearly $10 million to the move and Boyle Street was fundraising. And this was going to be a new space just a few blocks north on a 107A Avenue that would provide amenities and drop-in support to members of the community in the same way Boyle Street currently does, but with a space much better suited to providing their services. And this is what they thought up until a couple of weeks ago when they were at an SDAB hearing with uh, proponents from the community saying, no, we do not think this application is allowable under the zoning bylaw. And this week the SDAB ruled and gave credence to those community concerns, saying, no, this is not a permitted development under the current zoning. This is a $28.5 million project, this move to this other building. The $10 million, as you say, they got from the Oilers Community Foundation. They got estimated around $5 million for the sale of the existing building. They've raised another $7.5 million already, uh, including $2 million from Capital Power. So this decision comes at a time when they were getting pretty close to the end. They're more than 75% of the way to the campaign goal needed for this building. So just to underscore, this came as a bit of a shock, this decision. The other thing that's a bit of a shock to me about this is that I don't understand how this is not a permitted use or doesn't conform with the uses prescribed for the site. This building has been a banana ripening warehouse, a laser tag location, the offices of the Mennonite Center for Newcomers. Like there's been a variety of things in this space. And as you say, it's not very far 
from the existing location, right? It's not like we've moved them across the city or something like that. This decision was opposed, of course, by uh, members of the community in Chinatown and Macaulay, who generally, I think it's fair to say, oppose any development or any um, increase or, or intensification of social services in the neighborhood. So there's a lot to break down with this decision, and I am unfortunately not a lawyer, so I won't get into the legal nitty gritty of it uh, because I will embarrass myself. But I was reading the uh, 81 page SDAB decision that was issued. And Mac, you know, I found myself actually agreeing with a lot of what the SDAB ruled. Okay, enlighten us. The fundamental crux of the zoning is that the site is zone CB2, which is a general business zone. Um, And this is to provide for businesses that require a large site and a location with good visibility and accessibility along or adjacent to major public roadways. That's a quote from the zoning bylaw. Community recreation services is not a permitted or discretionary use in the CB2 zone. The allegation of those fighting against this rezoning were that Boyle Street was going to be providing community recreation services. You know, they'd allow people to drop in and play basketball while social workers worked on their case. There's a case to be made that this was community recreation services. I don't think it's bad that community recreation services were there, but I think it is inarguable that community recreation services were going to be taking place on the site. And that's not permitted under the zoning bylaw. Now, if you're asking, hey, Mac just said, wasn't this a laser tag? Isn't that absurd? Well, indoor participant recreation services are different from community recreation services. Remember back earlier when the uh, mask bylaw was coming into effect, where you couldn't have people in your home, but if you paid money to be in a business, you could wear a mask. It's the same thing. Capitalism makes everything okay. If you pay (laughs) to use the service, it's fine. But if it's provided to the community at no charge, it's not so fine. Boyle Street was saying this was going to be a primarily health services facility. And the appellants argued, no, it's going to be much more than health services. And I think it should be much more than health services. That's the entire point of the facility. So is my problem with the SDAB here? Probably not. They are enfranchised to rule on the zoning bylaws and whether laws were followed. And I think they did that by reading the zoning bylaw. Now, the SDAB does have latitude to make exceptions and grant variances. And should they have done that for the good of the community? Absolutely. I, I think that. But if they are ruling just on the text and are not performing any advocacy, I think it's possible they made the right call. That's really interesting. I think that's a fair assessment. It's hard for me to think that they don't include some advocacy in their general decisions. I mean, the SDAB is charged with making quite a range of decisions, right? Everything from individual driveways up to infill and, you know, really impactful things that will will really help shape the city. And I think there's opportunity for them to, as you say, have a bit of latitude um, to make a different decision. I also wonder whether or not this zone will even exist once the zoning bylaw renewal is done? Certainly not. It's incompatible with mixed-use development. So there's another reason why it sounds problematic. And the first part that you read out there about the frontage of the street, like, we're happy to just leave this giant empty building there. Is that a better use of this location? I mean, that argument I find 
really difficult to understand as well. I mean, clearly to me, the right thing to do here would have been to approve this, have this project go forward, and to allow it to serve the people that it is already serving in that community, but better and probably more people and for longer with less uncertainty about the the future of their building and their and their organization it's also really problematic that after the decision came out and we we heard about this with the um, the tree gate as well members of boyle street have been receiving racist voicemails and calls about this and then consider those calls as well as maybe to some extent this decision a continued example of discrimination against the indigenous people who they primarily serve. And I think that's really problematic. And this is the same day that Vital Signs, which is the report from ECF and Social Planning Council that we've talked about a few times in ads on the show came out. And it's all about systemic racism in in Edmonton. It does seem to continue to be a challenge. While I was arguing for the SDAB, I became very cognizant that it sounded like I didn't support this development. I absolutely think Boyle Street should have a location. And I think this location is actually a great spot for it. It's near the place where it currently exists, so the existing community doesn't have to move very far. I think council has some takeaways here. First, this should be clear as day to members on city council that our zoning bylaw is not working. And we have the zoning bylaw redevelopment in process, and it should be coming later in the next year. And we're all very excited about that. In the interim, if I was on city council... I would be doing the hallway track to make sure my other counselors agree with me, but I'd be communicating with back channels on Boyle Street saying, apply for a DC1, apply for a specific zoning for the site and we'll approve it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If the SDAB is saying the zoning bylaw doesn't permit this use, fair. Let's change the zoning and let's change the use of that zone so that we can put the building in that location. I think that aligns with the goals that council wants, and I think that aligns with the needs of the community. And I find it hard to believe that we would kibosh this entire plan because the former laser tag court had some basketball courts. (laughs) I think you're right. And I hope that's, you know, the outcome that we see here. The other possible outcome, of course, is that they could contest this decision at the Alberta Court of Appeal, which has happened. They could take it forward that way as well. But as you say, you know, perhaps having council simply approve a a different zone for the site might be a a fairer way to go or a quicker way to go. Boyle Street said for what it's worth, they plan to proceed with the new facility and they'll explore all avenues to make sure that that happens. Of course, council has a lot on its plate this week. Uh, This week was the true start of budget in earnest. (laughs) Well, let's clarify. They actually haven't started budget deliberations yet. They extended public hearing to Wednesday morning so they could hear from more speakers. They had 11 panels of speakers, more than about 200 people uh, that had signed up, most of whom who showed up and, and spoke. And then they spent the rest of Wednesday, you know, dealing with the emergency shelters and starting to get into hearing from civic agencies, which they're going to do more of uh, today as we're recording this and then Friday as you receive this episode and probably early into next week as well. So we're getting closer. But we're not quite at the point where they're talking about, you know, specific amendments and things like that. What we did hear a lot about this week was, was of course, public hearing. And there was a couple of really commonly cited priorities that came up. I think one that I heard loud and clear was all about climate change. Many people spoke about the need to do more, about the need for this budget to fund the things that are in the energy transition strategies, things we've talked about in previous episodes, Troy. Uh, And the other one was affordable housing. Those two things came up you know, throughout the three days of public hearings from a, from a large number of speakers. And of course, 
a lot of these items with affordable housing and climate are either absent from the budget or unfunded in the budget, which means that administration's proposed increase of about three and a half percent will only get higher if any of these service packages are added and approved. This is the conflict that council will be fighting with during this budget season. It's not so much how many dollars do we have and what can we spend it on? It's okay, we've got this baseline budget. How much higher do we want the percentage to be from the initial press release? And how much political fallout can we handle with that? And that's balanced, of course, against people who want things in their budget that council has promised and campaigned on and aren't getting in the current budget. That's the tightrope that they're walking over the next couple of weeks. And they'll probably look for opportunities to cut some things and to create some space in the budget or to push things out. And, you know, they'll play with that number up and down. I actually, this week, Troy, looked around the Edmonton region at all the municipalities, and they're all doing the same thing, looking at their budgets. Most of them are not doing multi-year budgeting like Edmonton, so they're looking at 2023. Of the municipalities that have approved tax increases so far, almost all of them reduced from the original proposed amount, the notable exception there being Stony Plain, which uh, approved several additional funding requests and increased it to more than 7%. Most of the proposed budgets, the ones that are still to be decided upon, including Edmonton's, you know, they have a relatively high amount and councillors at those municipalities have indicated they will try to get that percentage lower. The common message across all these municipalities and, in, and indeed throughout the province and I'm sure elsewhere is just that inflation is a real problem, not just for civic operations, but for the constituents they serve and the people that vote for them. And so nobody really wants to improve huge tax increases. But that said, you know, the point of the public hearing is for councillors to hear directly from the public about things that are important to them and things they would like to see funded, even if it means increasing that tax increase a little bit. I think one of the most contentious things that will be coming up in this budget, and we heard councillors already talk about it in terms of early amendment stacking, uh, was Lewis Farms Rec Center. Yeah. If we're talking about making room in the budget, that represents a $350 million project. You don't necessarily have to cancel the recreation center to get a lot of room back, to scale it back, to remove components, to change the design, could save $100, $200 million. And couple this with the fact that Lewis Farms is currently asking for north of $100 million of new funding for emergent priorities like inflation and increased cost of labor and a whole host of other reasons that the project is just a little bit more expensive than it was initially approved. So I expect to see councillors looking to that as the golden goose of maybe we can find some money for some other priorities in this rec center. Yeah, and I hope we get some greater clarity on that because that's a capital project. So if we're saving a couple hundred million dollars, that's on the capital budget side. And where that impacts the tax increase is in the amount of debt servicing that we have to take on on the operational side. So, you know, there can be some interesting accounting practices, I think, that are fully legal, but that they can do with the debt or how the projects are funded that might shift what that debt servicing amount looks like, the amount of debt that we take on to build these projects, because that's what will impact that percentage increase. Canceling a $350 million capital project doesn't automatically, you know, do anything on the operating side if we're going to use that debt for something else. For sure. And it all comes down to operating budget. When we're talking about this percentage increase, it's based on the operating budget. The number you should look to if you're trying to equate, well, how much does this project impact my tax levy? A good ballpark is around 16 or $17 million. 
is a percent on your tax increase. So 16 or 17 million of operating funding right. is around a percent on your tax bill. Yeah, great point. Uh, I mean, there was a few other things that you know, we came up from speakers, maybe not as frequently as um, climate change and affordable housing, but, you know, we heard people talk about Horlock Park. I think a lot of people are really upset that that thing is going to be closed for three years. There was talk about support for innovation, uh, in particular, maybe around um, the film and video game industries. The Edmonton Screen Industries Office was looking for an increase there. There were several speakers who did talk about support for sports and recreation, including, you know, supporting things like um, the YMCA and the existing locations that we have, not just building these these new ones. So there was a wide range of things that council heard from, heard about from speakers. Just before the public hearing took place, we heard from administration that they're expecting that there's going to be a surplus in the operating budget this year, which is kind of a, a, a good sign going into budget, I would think, if you're on council and you're like looking at a $68 million surplus. It's got to be pretty appealing. Immediately when I heard about the surplus, my first question was, why are we spending $7.5 million out of the financial stabilization reserve if we got an extra $70 million just chilling over there in surplus? And it's because the surplus hasn't yet realized. It's for the end of the operating budget in 2021, which we're not at yet. But I mean, super theoretically, you could always replenish that $7.5 million and pretend that the funding was funded through the surplus. Of course, Mayor Sohi said he has probably some more ambitious plans for that money. Yeah, the mayor has indicated that he would like to obviously invest that in affordable housing. He also talked about using it for, quote, bold climate action. Uh, and he talked about expanding the industrial tax base. And in a blog post recently, he also talked about, you know, funding the EDGE Fund that we talked about and, and putting some more money toward innovation as well. So these are all things that he would like to see that money go toward. So this is all coming up in the next couple of weeks in budget. But if you're a close watcher of Edmonton City Council, you know that meetings can go quite long with councillors trying to prove their point by, quote, asking questions of administration. That's really just debate. And that's why one of my favorite processes during budget time is the part where councillors get to submit written questions to administration prior to the budget. So they get full responses and are able to do their dunking towards other councillors rather than as phrased as questions towards administration. Of course, we'll still get some of that, but we looked through some of the questions of administration and I found a lot of interesting nuggets in there. These questions are one of the best sources of information I've found in writing about city council for well over a decade now. Questions at budget time have an incredibly high density of information about various projects and operational things at the city. It's a really great opportunity for us, and I'm sure for councillors themselves, to learn more about how things work and how much they cost. But before we get into a couple of the nuggets, I want to highlight your tweet about how many questions each counselor asked, <laughs> which I was just, this is fascinating. So you've ranked all of the counselors here from num most number of questions to least. And on the top, we've got counselor Aaron Rutherford with 113 questions. And at the bottom, we have counselor Aaron Paquette with just one. He used his full speaking time, so he doesn't need to ask any more questions. <laughs> <laughs> I should highlight when I ran these statistics, only the questions on the capital budget were out. This doesn't include operating and carbon budgets. So okay. we're just talking about capital right now. Aaron Rutherford at the top with 113. There's quite a range in between. I would say that part of the number of questions has a correlation with experience 
as a counselor. You can see the returning counselors, Paquette, Hamilton, Knack, they're all near the bottom of questions asked. And that's mostly just due to when you read Aaron Rutherford's questions, there's a lot of that reads sort of like if you're reading a Google Doc and you add an inline comment of just like, hey, can you quickly answer this question? There's Mm -hmm. a lot of just like individual line items. Can you clarify this? There's a lot of value. There's a lot of clarifications, whereas other counselors sort of amalgamated their questions and asked more broader multi-point questions on a specific report. The number doesn't quite necessarily yield how much information they were gathering. Sure. It's as much how they asked the question as what they were asking. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I still think, as I said, this is a pretty rich source of information, whether it's a lot of little questions or a few big questions. So tell us what stood out for you, Troy, in the questions that you saw. Just speaking on why this is so valuable, the best part of this for me is a counselor asks a question, and when they ask it in committee verbally, There's a lot of flowery language and preamble and selling Mm -hmm. of administration. Whereas in this document, a counselor asks a question and administration responds with a table of data answering the question. Uh, So where this is exceptionally valuable is where counselors ask things like Counselor Ashley Salvador when she was asking what percentage of the bike plan budget was budgeted for engagement and how does that compare to roadway projects? And the bike plan in option B, which was the typical engagement strategy, 12% of the bike plan budget was set aside for engagement. This compares with 0.6% of the yellowhead, 0.9% of Torlager Drive, and 0.5% of the 50th Street overpass budgets, respectively, being put towards engagement. So when we talk about bike plans being engaged to death, there may actually be some value and truth to that. (laughs) There's actual data to back that up. That is fascinating. And and like you say, this makes me wonder if we should just do it this way normally, right? Without all the flowery language, you just get the data. There it is in black and white. One of the other really interesting, still bike-related questions came from Counselor Jans. He asked about snow and ice control costs mm-hmm. on different types of infrastructure. And administration responded that for a lane kilometer of roadway, it's 5000 and change dollars. They separated it to meters squared for walkway, which was exceptionally unhelpful as a <laughs> apples to apples comparison. Yeah. But a walkway is a dollar twenty-two per meter square. And you know, if you consider that a uh, a bike lane maybe around three meters in width, you do some quick quick maths and do some uh, multiplication, and you would find that per lane kilometer of bike lane, it should be around thirty six hundred dollars per kilometer if you use that metric. So less than the roads, a couple thousand dollars less, yeah. However, administration reported that divided bike lanes cost $9,457 per kilometer. So double the amount it costs to clear roadways to clear bike lanes. And that's a real head scratcher that I'm hoping gets some follow-up during budget. Yeah, I hope they, uh, they do follow up on that question. That's a peculiar way of Uh, presenting the data to not have an apples to apples comparison. I have to ask, what was Councillor Paquette's single written question on capital budget? You know, it was rather esoteric. His question was, with all the investment going into Baldwin and Belvedere, when does the city recommend we further advance the profile for funding Baldwin Belvedere revitalization? Uh, It's a a very specific question that uh, doesn't really get a lot of data. The city said, eh, sometime soon. Basically, it is not currently recommended for funding because it doesn't meet 
the idea of being a high priority or growth project that would have significant impact. Right. Yeah. They mentioned not being, you know, funded or having any funding from other partners or other orders of government or funded using constrained sources or any of these other reasons that might move something up the list, essentially. I want to talk about the best nugget I think I found in this report, though. Okay. You and I have talked at length about how when we're talking about adding new bike lanes, the operations for snow clearing are a specific budget item or how active transportation components of projects have a specific funding source. But we never talk about how much we spend on roads. Well, the capital budget talked about how much we spend on roads. And Mac, 25.82% of the entire capital budget, everything is just for roads. So this is new roads, maintaining existing roads, fixing roads, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's around $837 million for growth or new roads and $965 million for renewal. This includes things like pothole repair, repaving, that sort of thing. And the growth would include Yellowhead and, and some of those projects. Absolutely. For comparison, active transportation gets $119 million or 1.7%, and that includes pedestrian bridges. And we know how expensive bridges are. So you build a bridge and that's basically half of that funding. <laughs> yep. 202 million is for sidewalks for growth and renewal. And that's around 2.9%. But that's an astronomically tiny amount compared to the roadway budget. I would say that that's shocking, but I can't actually say that I'm shocked. I mean, we know this to be true, right? We, we have a city plan that calls for a shift in modes for transportation away from single occupancy vehicles to active transportation. But the budget doesn't reflect that. When it comes time to actually putting our money where our mouth is, council's never really done that, I don't think, when it comes to roadway infrastructure and and active transportation, at least. Uh, If we're talking about finding room in the budget, there's there's one place you have to look, and it's, it's literally everywhere. If you look around in the city of Edmonton, you will see a road. And that's a spot that we can find savings, and that's a spot that we can find climate action. Police. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, there were a lot of questions that went from uh, counselors to administration, and there's only more coming in the future, both with the operating budget and when budget deliberations start in earnest. But we will get to that when we get to that. Right now, we have to get to Alberta Blue Cross, which... Even if you're a busy business owner with more meetings and hours in a day, you're calm and collected when your group benefit plan is taken care of by Alberta Blue Cross. Your employees can manage their own health, dental, life, and disability coverage online, anytime, on any device. It makes it easier for them and for you. You can learn more and explore your options at ab.bluecross.ca. And that's it. We're out. This is the start of many an intense budget week. We've got a couple of these coming up. Mac, at the end of it, what's your budget prediction? Price is right rules. What's the percentage increase that we're looking at at the end of the two weeks? (laughs) I don't want to play this game. (laughs) Uh, It's probably going to be a bit higher, I think. I'm going to go prices right rules. I'll go four and a half. Oh, Mac, Mac, you're way too low. It's 5.6%. Okay. I guess we will see at the end who is right and who is poor. And if it's me, I'm both of those things. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.